Okay, so last week we started Advent. We started in, uh, in Philippians, and I kind of talked to you last week about how normally I would be in the lectionary right now, but some of the lectionary passages were from Philippians, and I wound up kind of um, falling in love with this book as, a, as an Advent book, you know, talking about some of our Advent themes. This is Peace Week. Um, this is the week we light the peace candle and we talk about Jesus coming as the Prince of Peace and what it means to have peace and what it means to um, desire and long and wait for peace because Advent is a season of waiting. It's this contemplative season when we quiet our hearts and we think about these important themes. Um, and while the world is kind of ramping things up and getting crazier and crazier, getting ready for Christmas and really starting to speed things up, we're trying to quiet our hearts down and go the other way. We're trying to decrescendo to where we're in a quiet, contemplative place, expecting Jesus to come, because that's what Advent is all about. It, it's saying, if I create space, if I, uh, if I quiet myself and wait for him, he arrives, he comes. That's what the, the Christmas season taught us, was that uh, after 500 years of silence, kind of in the Jewish faith, where this uh, kind of tradition of God speaking and people writing and, and compiling those writings and things happening, uh, it just went quiet all of a sudden. And, uh, and the Jews didn't, didn't write down things. They weren't recording uh, the things like they had been. And, it, and in that silence, the intensity built. That's what decrescendo does when you, you know, if you ever have one of those songs and it just quiets down all of a sudden, you know it's about to explode into the big crescendo. That's what the decrescendo is for. It's this, it's this, it's not a lazy silence. It's not a quiet of just not doing anything. It's this, it's this building of tension through quiet. So we quiet ourselves down expecting if we will do that, if we'll bring our hearts down in De Crescendo, he will arrive, that he will show up um, like he did. So that's, that's the hope of Advent, and that's what we're trying to do, is, is to go countercultural and, uh, and go against the grain by being uh, peaceful when everybody else is, uh, is doing the opposite. And so we started in chapter 1 of Philippians, kind of did an overview and we talked about how personal this book was, how different it is for Paul because most of his stuff, you know, had a a either kind of a corrective tone where he was he was uh, being pastoral with either um, uh, somebody that a predecessor that he had trained and he was giving them guidance or something pastoral or with a church that was in error and he was trying to kind of straighten them out or it was um, kind of theological uh, like Ephesians and Colossians, he was trying to kind of lay out some good sound theology and just, we call them the general epistles. He was just kind of laying out a more, um, a more holistic look at the faith um, in those books. And then we got this one book, Philippians, that's kind of uh, different than all the rest because it's so personal. They had sent him uh, some kind of care package while he was in prison. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And uh, they sent him a care package. We don't know if it was money or if it was food or what it was, but they sent it with uh, this guy named Epaphroditus. He carried it. It was, it was a pretty good journey from um, no matter where Paul was, if he was, some say he was in Ephesus, which is on the other side of the Aegean, and it was a treacherous journey to get there. Or he was in Rome, which is even farther. You've got to go all the way through Greece and then across the little strait there and to get into Italy. And so it's a long way that way. So no matter how, where Paul was, it was a big deal for them to send something to him. Um, and this is not a big church. It's not a big rich church. It's a small kind of poor church. And so this is his thank you letter. This is him writing back and, 
and uh, and he he opens the book, you know, with those really kind of sappy words, like, "Oh my gosh, every single time I think of you, I uh, I pray, and and I'm I, my heart just melts for you guys." In this this real personal emotional book, and he kind of continues that um, kind of personal nature. Uh, the second half of this chapter, chapter two, which we're going to talk about tonight, we're not going to spend much time in the second half because it's is literally just. Um, Hey, I'm going to try to send Timothy. Uh, Epaphroditus came. He got kind of sick, which was, uh, but he's better now, and I'm glad he's better. I'm going to send him back. And it's just the kind of stuff you would text to somebody. It's literally almost like he's texting um, the Philippians, just just really nitty gritty um, stuff, which kind of brings the book to life a little bit because you realize that this wasn't, um, you know, like just a theological work. This is somebody's. Uh, you know, this is like reading somebody's email. You know, it's uh, real personal that Paul does here. Um, but there's also this thing that's going to survive through the book. Um, and verses 17 and 18, he hits it here where his future is uncertain. And that's what made chapter one so um, so touching. As Because we talked about hope last week. Um, and we talked about how Paul doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And then the thing he even says you know, part of me wants to die. Part of me wants to go on and be with Christ. Part of me wants to stay because I know I can do more good if I stay. And he's torn between these two things. And we talked last week about how hope is is never neutral. Hope is always tension because you can only hope for something you don't have yet. So whenever there's hope, it means you don't have the very thing you want to have yet. And so in the definition of hope is this tension of I don't have the things I want yet and so I'm hoping for them. And this kind of continues this this wondering this because uh, Paul mentions again in this book uh, or in this chapter in verse 17 he says but if but I rejoice even if I lose my life and pour it out like a liquid offering to God just like your faithful service is an offering to God I want you to share in that joy so he he knows through this entire book that he may not be released like he may die in prison he knows his future is uncertain um, which lends uh, almost a, a depth to the book that we don't catch. Like someone's final words are, are more important than some of the stuff they just say, you know, in the day-to-day. We say a lot of garbage that we don't mean. We say a lot of stuff we don't put much thought into. Um, we say a lot of sloppy things that we later regret. But your final words, you know, are important. If you know this is the last thing you're going to say, this might be your last communication, you put a little more thought into it, and a little more depth, which we know... Um, Paul does here. And so that, that adds some, uh, a certain quality to the book, knowing that he's aware this might be his last letter to them. And so it makes, you, makes him think about what's most important, which we're actually going to talk about tonight. So last time he talked about the, last week he kind of did the how are you stuff. Um, he, you know, he talked about, uh, hey, the gospel's still going forward. I know I'm in prison, but a lot of people around me are preaching the gospel. They're talking about why I'm here and the gospel's spreading through these other ways, and I'm just glad that the gospel's getting out. You know, when you're, we talked last week about how when you're Paul, when you're uh, the traveling evangelist, that's what you've done, that's what you're known for, and you're imprisoned, that it, it means more than just being in prison. Shucks, it means my whole ministry has been shut down. This is what I do is travel and start churches and plant churches and do things. And they've, they've not just imprisoned me. They've, they've stopped me from doing what I want to do. And, and so in chapter 1, he lays out, hey, no, the gospel is still going forward. The gospel is still strong. I know I'm locked up, but everybody around here is talking about it. So good is still happening. And this time he shifts. In this chapter, he shifts from the how am I doing to the how are you doing. He turns on the Philippians and talks about them now. And, uh, and it's kind of interesting because he opens up. 
he kind of does the, you know, this is where I'm at. But then he opens this up, um, talking about uh, what I would think would be the most important thing to him. Like I said, this is a short letter. He doesn't have a lot of time. Um, he knows it might be his last letter. And so he goes right at, uh, with his future unsure, without really knowing what's coming, um, he goes at church unity. He goes at how they get along with each other. Oh, I didn't go on to the... Oh, you got to be kidding me. Hold on a second. We are having so many tech issues lately. Got to get better, right? It can't get any worse. Let's try this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in His Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Now, we can't miss the fact that um, Paul could be facing death. This could be the last thing he gets a chance to say to him. And he doesn't go after the liberal media and what they're doing to our country. He doesn't go after what it's going to take to get those Republicans out of power in Washington. He doesn't go to the impact of Hollywood on our children and blah, blah, blah. He doesn't go after any of the cultural stuff. You know, and they were living in a culture not unlike ours. There would have been plenty for him to go after. Like he's, if he is in Rome, he's seeing the, the depth of, of cultural depravity and, and could have easily said, hey, whatever you do, stay out of Rome. This place is terrible. Or don't turn on the TV. Everything is horrible. Stay off Facebook. It's all negative. Like there's a lot of things he could have gone after. And he doesn't. He stays in the church. He says, here's, here's what's most important to me. Here's what I want. Agree with one another. Work together. Stay together. Be together. And it rings really close to another passage um, of someone else who was toward the end of their life that said something similar in John. It says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. This is Jesus and his at the end of his, well, his ministry time for sure, and really almost at the end of his life, um, he gives this kind of lengthy prayer. It actually takes up almost a couple chapters, and he ends it with this. This is how he wraps it up. These are his final words. And to me, this is kind of a deep burden on my heart. Um, First, because Jesus prayed it. He prayed that the church would be one. He prayed that the church would be unified. Um, said that that would be the greatest sign of... That we are His. 
The greatest sign that people would know that we're his by our love for one another. Paul begs for it here. Make me truly happy. Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. You've got Jesus praying for it. Paul's begging for it. He, he starts off the book of Corinthians, which is this corrective book where he has a lot of stuff to correct, and it's pretty bad. One guy was sleeping with his dad's wife, so his stepmom, and it was just open in the church and everybody knew it and, and nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody was saying anything about it. I mean, he had some, he had some pretty major issues to deal with. There was theological issues. There was a lot to deal with. And Paul opens the letter with, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me that you, there are quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Apollos. I'm of Peter. Some say, I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Certainly not. There is a clear biblical imperative that we cannot escape towards unity, towards peace in the church. And here's why this is such a big deal to me. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues that, that are biblically wrong. Sins. We could call them sins. And that I don't choose to pick on. I don't choose to talk about. I don't choose to... And that bothers some people. That I stay away from certain topics that are, that are touchy. And I could dwell on them. And I've got plenty of scriptural backing to do so. I could stand up here and, 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 and pick on this and pick on that and say these people that do this are wrong and here's the scripture to prove it and here's the verses that say it's wrong. And, and we could do that. But the fact that the church has failed so miserably to keep this one command that Jesus prayed his last prayer for, Paul begged the Philippians for, Paul chewed out the Corinthians for getting wrong. The fact that the church has, has done such a miserable job of this one command I tend to feel like I don't have much right to stand around and pick on what the world is doing when, when we're doing such a rough job of doing the things that he asked us to do. And what's worse is I'm terrible at keeping this command. I'm one of the worst. I'm a debater. I love to argue. I love, I, I love to... Because to, I, I feel pretty strong about what I believe. And I feel like... Okay, let's be honest. I'm right. I know I'm right. And I love to sit down and debate with people because I'm, I, I, and I don't just like to prove that I'm right. <laughs> I don't like to just prove that I'm right. I like to make other people feel dumb if I can. Like, I like to drive it home and really, you know, really get into it. <laughs> I'm not wishy-washy in my theology. I don't believe in unity because I, because I, I'm wishy-washy in the things I believe and I, and I just want everybody to, to get along and it doesn't really matter what we believe. That's, that's not where I come from. This is a command. We're commanded to be one. We're commanded to have unity. I take that very seriously. And, and so I don't understand why I would pick on somebody else when I'm in a constant battle to be Christ-like in this one area. I, every time I hear somebody say something that's clearly bad theology because it doesn't agree with me, I'm like the, the, the struggle it takes for me not to engage that debate, not to go, oh, open your Bible, this is going to be fun. Like, I, I, I'm constantly in a battle with my own flesh over that. 
And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a real struggle. And, and the only reason I fight that battle, because I used to be a, I used, that used to be my drug, man, was debate. I used, to, I used to dive into it every chance I got. It didn't even have to be biblical, but, but that, was, that was kind of my forte. If I could get somebody that, that would engage me there, that, that was where I went. And the only reason I don't, the only reason I'm, I, I call myself a reformed debater, like I'm, I'm my, my name is Chris and I'm a debater, um, because I, I believe in this command. I believe this command is real. I believe it's more than just, um, more than just a wouldn't that be great if we all got along. But I feel like this is, this is something we're called to do. Paul begs for it here. I mean, I, I go this far and, and uh, I mean, I can get in trouble for this sometimes, but I, I consider myself to be reformed in my theology. I'm definitely a Protestant. But I think August 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed the thesis on the wall, is uh, I lament that day. I think that was an evil day in church history. It was a day that the church corporate bailed on, on this command. And, we, and we, we split. And you can go back to 1054, the Great Schism, when the East split from the West. I think that's an evil day in church history. I'll lose my Protestant card for that, I know. But I don't think that was a good day. And I, and I love Luther. I think Luther had some great stuff to say. But I don't think that was a good day. I don't think, that, I don't think, good, I don't think good won that day. Whatever side you fall on, I don't think, I don't think splitting up was the right answer. And, and, I don't, and I wasn't there, I don't know. I don't know if there was any other way to, to do what needed to be done, but I know that wasn't good. I know the whole church splitting in half wasn't good. But the problem is peace. This kind of peace is a tricky, is a tricky target. Paul says that we would agree wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. And if we're honest, that sounds like an absolute pipe dream. I mean, that sounds utterly ridiculous and unachievable. Anybody who has spent any time with any other human knows that this is a tough one. That does not even sound doable. And so what we, what we typically do is we go to one of two extremes. We either do the kind of Unitarian thing where we widen theology to the point that it doesn't really matter what you believe, like it's just whatever goes, goes. And we broaden, we broaden the goal to the point that, you know, all roads lead to the same place. Who really cares who you are? Come on in, everybody. Or we do the denominationalism thing where we narrow our view down to this little list. That way we can at least claim to have unity in our little pocket, right? If, if, if I make this, this, this clean-cut little theological doctrinal statement, then I can at least claim that those of us inside this little doctrinal statement are unified. We're unified in our belief. We're wholeheartedly, we're one mind, one purpose, wholeheartedly together. Except that focus always changes. Like it, it becomes, it's all about Jesus and this one thing and that one thing. And, and this thing here too, and we've got to tack this on too. And then once you've got that, and somebody's like, what about that one thing? You're like, okay, well that too then. Like, and, and we draw this line in the sand, and, and, and it, it's constantly moving. And, and, and what different people value 
gets put in and it, and it gets all mixed up. And then you add in the problem, and this is something that would have been easier in Paul's day, is that when there's any cultural benefit to being a Christian, everything changes. Because then it actually matters who's in and who's out. Like, you know, they got into this, well, really the, the Holy Roman Empire for one, but then when Calvin's Geneva, it got even more where, you know, there was a, a social and cultural benefit to being in the, in the church, to being a believer. And so now it's kind of important to know who's really in and who's not. You know, back in Paul's day, when you're a Philippian and you're being persecuted for being a Christian, if somebody wants into that, you don't really have to question too much if they believe just right. Like, you know, there's time to work that out. If they're willing to get beat up just to be part of the group, then you're kind of like, you know, I'm not going to question too tight. You're, you, we can work on the rest. Of, I'm assuming you're genuinely in because you're willing to be part of us who are the kind of the outcasts and the small guys. So, but once Christianity climbs to where it has some cultural clout, then everybody wants to draw a tighter line and say, well, now we don't want everybody in. So we, you know, so that's a, it's an interesting thing that, that our culture is probably going to have to start thinking about as Christianity loses footing. But that was for free. That wasn't part of the deal. Um, anyway, unity is this moving target. This kind of, uh, it's, it's hard to, because as soon as you try to align yourself with one person, you're in so doing pulling yourself further away from this other person. If I, if I try to align my belief with this one theological system over here, I get further from this one over here. And Jesus loves these people over here and died for them. And do I really want to allow myself to get pulled farther away from them this way? So which group do I unify with? And luckily Paul gives us some advice on how to handle that. Uh, and the first one is just the mindset. It's you have to give up on the idea of being right. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. And this is super tough. Super tough. And I think we benefit if we just own how tough it is. If we, if we at least own how hard it is to think of others ahead of ourselves. But when we engage somebody and we, we go in assuming that, that they're right... Uh, or that you're right and they're wrong, you know, we've kind of already lost. But it's hard not to do because you wouldn't believe what you believe. Part of the definition of belief is that I think it's right. <laughs> and so you, going in, you automatically assume you're right. You, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't. But, but when you engage another person to, to be able to at least go, this other person, that something had to convince them. Something had to, like they must be seeing something that makes their side compelling. Maybe I can see that side. That doesn't mean I have to believe it. But maybe is there some, what is off in me that I can't see what they're seeing? There is a way to go into a discussion like this, humble, and say, this other person, and, and here's the thing. I've read enough of people that I disagree with. I would love to be able to say that, that all the people out there who are writing stuff that goes contrary to what I believe are stupid. I love to say that they're just, they're just dumb. They're clearly uneducated and stupid. But they're not. A lot of them are brilliant people, much smarter than I am. And even though I disagree with them, there's part of me that knows this is a very smart person. There has to be some decent evidence, some decent stuff that they're seeing because they're not dumb people. They've committed their life to the pursuit of knowledge. And, and they're, they're, that doesn't mean they can't be led astray. It doesn't mean they can't be uh, you know, misinformed and, and that there's not a lot of stuff going on, but they're not just dumb. I can't just assume I'm the only smart person.
person in the room, you know, maybe, no. Anyway, we have to be humble. We have to go into these situations, go into any situation, understanding, I could be wrong, my first move has to always be humility. I firmly believe we can't align our hearts with others unless we see them and see and under and, and are willing to hear them and look at their journey and and see if uh, where they're at. If we don't, we'll never know peace. And once we have the right mindset, we figure out which group is right. Right? We have to figure out who is who's who's the right one. And then once we know, we can align with them. And Paul helps us out there too. He says. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And this is big. And we haven't talked about this much. We talked about it quite a bit in the beginning, but um, this is what I generally call the, the Christocentric approach to faith. Because what we typically do is we have this line in the sand. Saved and unsaved. You know, the, the Christians and non-Christians. Those who have, who have joined and those who haven't. Believers, unbelievers. We have this clean, you know, line. And, and our goal is to get people across the line, right? We want to get them saved. We want to get them to pray a prayer. We want to get them to do their thing so that they're now our team and, and, and the line stays and it keeps everything clean. Insiders, outsiders, right? Problem is that line moves too. Like, where do you put that line? Some say you just pray a simple prayer. As soon as you pray that prayer, it's in. Somebody's like, yeah, but if you pray the prayer, but nothing changes, and you still, uh, did you cross the line, or did you say some words from your side and not really on the other side? And and really, if you got two different lines, don't you have another group where you got okay, you guys have your line and the people inside yours on your line. My line's different, so now we got a different group, and now we got three groups of people. Those who crossed that line over there, those this line over here, and then the people who haven't crossed any lines at all. And then you multiply that by the number of denominations there are, right? And we have just lines everywhere. And nobody knows which line is the real line and which team to be on. I think what Paul is saying is more like this. We're all pursuing Christ. And we're not, we're not concerned about in and out. We're not concerned about we're not near and far. If you're far from Christ, your 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 trajectory is toward Christ, then you're on the right path. And if you're near Christ, then your then your trajectory is toward Christ, and hopefully tomorrow you're going to be nearer Christ. And that's that's the goal is tomorrow to be nearer Christ, wherever I am on that spectrum. And yeah, I might be over here where I don't agree with almost anything that guy over there says, but we're both pursuing Christ. Guess where we're going to wind up? Hopefully in the same place. Hopefully if, if we stay on the same trajectory toward Christ, whatever that looks like, and whatever mess they may, they may have in my opinion, and their practice is off and their worship is off and their theology is completely goofy and non-systematic because I'm from the West and I like systematic things. Whatever. If we're both pursuing Christ, we should end up in the same place. That's the That's the... I call it the cruciocentric with the cross in the middle approach to faith. Right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't care if you've crossed a line. Maybe you crossed a line, maybe you didn't cross a line, but let's pursue Christ together. Wherever you are, wherever I am, let's just chase Jesus together. 
Unity doesn't come by aligning ourselves to another person. It comes by aligning ourselves to Christ. By aligning ourselves to Christ. There was an old marriage. We used to go to do a lot of marriage seminars and stuff. And they used to draw marriage like a triangle. You know, and you got, if it's a triangle and you got husband, wife, and God at the tip, the closer each of you get to God, the closer you get to one another. It was a fun little visual. If you pursue God together, your marriage also gets closer as you, as you each individually draw closer to God. And the only way to get farther from each other is to also get farther from God. Um, and it, and it, it works that way. Our alignment, our plumb line, our goal, our standard is Jesus, always. <laughs> Bill and I were talking, and uh, I looked it up in 1889. Um, they, out of uh, platinum and uh, iridium, they made a little salt shaker sized cylinder and they polished it until it was unanimously by all countries, I guess, agreed upon to be one kilogram. It was one kilogram. Then they put it in like a, re- a, a laboratory and it was the kilogram. And so if you want to know if something weighs a kilogram, you weigh it against that thing because that thing is the kilogram. Because they didn't feel like they could have a thing called the kilogram if you didn't say this, is, this thing is exactly how much a kilogram weighs. So if you don't know, you know, here it is. The problem is from 1889 to now, they found out iridium has a very slow half-life. And it's, so the kilogram is getting lighter and lighter. I mean, it's, right now we're talking like microscopic weight loss, but... The kilogram is now less than it was in 1889. And so now everybody's in a panic. And this is, this is a real panic in the scientific world about whether or not they should convert the kilogram to a mathematical ratio. Instead of having a real kilogram, it'll now just be a number. It's now a, now a ratio of something, a mathematical formulation. And this is the thing real people get paid to really worry about and, and deal with. But it's kind of good to know that we still think standards are important, that there still needs to be a central objective thing that's at the center of everything. And I think Christians should be this way. I think Jesus is our kilogram. He's our, he's our platinum, hopefully no deteriorable, deteriorable? Iridium, but hopefully we've got Jesus at the middle of the whole thing, holding it all together. I mean, I think, I think that's important because I think things change mores change and culture changes and ideas change and what's normal totally changes. But it's kind of comforting to know that 1,500 years ago, Christians were sitting around reading about Jesus, talking to this Samaritan woman at a well and trying to figure out what that means. That story hasn't changed. Our interpretation of it might alter and we might see something different than they saw. But it's great to know we're talking about the same Jesus interacting in the same narrative, in the same grand story for 2,000 years, we've been talking about the same Jesus. That He is our central figure. He is our standard. And He's the one thing we can pursue and know that nothing changes. So when Paul talks about what it means to have the mind of Christ, he goes into this statement. And this is kind of important. We don't really know. Scholars don't agree on whether or not Paul wrote this or whether or not he was quoting something. Uh, what would have been, but this is considered to be like the earliest um, creed, the earliest theological statement. This clearly wasn't just something Paul was rambling in this letter. He was quoting it. We have it in other writings from that time period that he was quoting something that was pretty well known. Um, most people believe this was one of the earliest creeds that was ever given. 
This is though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oops, did I not finish that? No, I didn't. So this is one of the earliest, like, creed, like we say the Nicene Creed or whatever. This is like one of the earliest faith statements in the church, one of the earliest creeds. And it covers the whole thing. Basically, he, uh, he was God. He was eternally God. Came to earth. Died. Was uh, risen by God. Uh, and then elevated to a place of kingship. So he goes straight into kingdom. That he's now, he now reigns. And so this is what it, it, it encompasses pretty much the whole doctrinal faith system in one fairly quick statement. But what's interesting is in Philippi, uh, the thing that would have been most fascinating to them is not the thing that's most fascinating to us. To them, divinity, human divinity was fairly normal. Like that was, it was not considered weird for a human to be divine. We've got the, the demigods, of course, like Hercules and, and stuff who were, uh, who were considered to be divine. But Alexander, when he conquered the whole world for Greece and when he, uh, you know, when he finally kind of settled on his throne, having conquered the known world, they declared him to be divine. Like everybody worshipped him like a god. Said so that God said, bestowed upon Alexander divinity. Alex, Alexander is Lord. It was a, it was a common statement that he was a god. Augustus, um, born Octavius, became Augustus, ended the Roman um, kind of civil war that started with Julius Caesar and, and when he overthrew the Republic and then uh, they killed him and then Anthony and Octavius and split the kingdom and then Octavius finally kind of brought everything back together under an empire and, and brought forth what they, uh, the Paxus Romana, the Rome finally has peace you know, that there's no more war. They, they declared him divine when he did that. that. That Caesar is Lord was said all the time. They totally believed that Octavius was, was divine, that, that uh, Caesar Augustus was divine. And when he died, they, they, people claimed to, to see him ascend into heaven. Like they completely were comfortable with divinity. What made this faith statement weird to the Philippians wasn't that a human was also a god. That was fairly normal. What was weird to them was that a God would come down to be human. That was the weird part. Great men ascended. That's what they were expected to do. Great men, like, and the greater, the higher the ascension. And if you achieved real, total, full, complete greatness, you ascended all the way to divinity. What did not happen was a God becoming human and not just human, a lowly human and not just a lowly human, a lowly human who dies a sinner's death. The, the revelation in this creed is the direction. The revelation is the, is the trajectory of, of Jesus' life, that it's not this up and to the right. It's that the path of peace is the path of descent. It's, it's stepping into the other person's situation. It's... It's lowering yourself for the sake of peace, for the sake of, of being with the other. I mean, enter into any 
political debate. Do you ever see humility? Do you ever see somebody taking on, flip on any of the news stations? Like the oddity, the, the rarity is the trajectory of this statement. As somebody from their position, from their, wherever that is, from their elevated position, chooses the path of descent, chooses the path of humility, chooses to think of the other ahead of themselves. That's what Jesus does here, and that's where the, the revelation comes from. He gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave, was born a human being, When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This was the shocking part. And this is what Paul, in a world that needs peace, is calling us to. And I don't think you can get anywhere near the next part if we don't have that mindset. He says, dear friends, You've always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in the world, full of crooked and in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then, on the day Christ returns, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like, like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share in that joy. We don't work for our salvation. That's a free gift from God. But we absolutely work for our peace. That will not just be given to us. If we don't align our hearts, if we don't humble ourselves, if we don't... If we don't choose the path of descent, we'll never know peace with God or with ourselves or with others. We, we have to choose the path of descent. Peace takes work. It's an alignment. He says you'll, you'll be like shining brights in a, uh, or bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Can you imagine today in our divided and broken world what a church that got along would, would look like? Like if, if in the middle of all this division, and to be honest, the church is, is the author of a lot of that division in the past, but what if in the middle of this divisive, angry, broken world, the church was unified, at least in itself, that the church was at peace? Just imagine what, what kind of a, a, a light and testimony that would be. So let's bring this back to Advent, because this is Peace Week, and Jesus prophesied was prophesied as the Prince of Peace. And a huge part of our anticipation, a huge part of what we wait for, a huge reason we wait for Jesus and we look forward to Jesus is because we recognize the world is not at peace. We're not at peace with other people. You know, even with ourselves in our own hearts, we're not at peace. And I believe we have to work hard to be of one mind. It is so biblical, we can't ignore it. We can't pretend like we're not called to get along with people. And I'm certainly not suggesting that sound doctrine is not important. I think we should pursue sound doctrine. I think you should dig for it, study it, read reputable Bible teachers, learn all you can possibly learn, you know, to be solid in your faith. What you believe does matter. It does matter, you know, that you have good, sound, firm doctrine. I'm not saying you should just be 
you know, totally wishy-washy, whatever, you know, whatever you want to do. But I think we should be what I call complex, not complicated in our theology. Or, or I also like to say, be an oak tree, not an orchid. Have you ever read what it takes for an orchid to live? How you're supposed to treat an orchid? I read the instructions this week. If they, it's, it started off, they would prefer to be in a clear pot that then goes inside of a decorative pot. And they say once a week you should pull your orchid out of the pot and let its roots dangle in water that's either distilled or recently boiled and cooled for 15 minutes. And after 15 minutes of dangling the roots in the water, you can put it back in the clear pot, back in the decorative pot, and put an ice cube on the dirt and let the ice cube slowly melt into the water because it doesn't like too much water at once. So you can just, and if you ever accidentally get the leaves wet, you take a soft tissue and you dab the leaves. Be very gentle that you don't. I don't treat my kids that well. I, I really don't. Like, there's no way in the world. That's complicated. To me, that's complicated. And have you ever felt like theology can be that way? Like you get one foot out of line or you say one thing wrong or you ask one wrong question and everybody's like, no, you're not doing it right. No, you're messing it up. That's not the way it works. I think the alternative is an oak tree, which is super complex. A full-grown oak tree is like an ecosystem all by itself. Like it is, it is supporting other life, and it is, it is sturdy. It goes deep in the ground. It, it's, and how many of you have ever gone out to service your oak tree? Like, have ever gone out and I got to go out and care for my oak trees? I got to make sure they stay healthy. I don't, even, I don't think you do anything to an oak tree. Like, they just, like, maybe at the beginning you do something to make sure it starts out straight, and then you walk away and never look back. Like, they just do their thing. But you can't say that they're not complex, super complex system. It's like, a, it's like a whole planet that exists in an oak tree. You've got whole communities of species living and doing their thing in this thing. And it's, it's affecting the underground. It's clear under there. And you got, it's got an ecosystem under the ground and all the roots and things that are surviving on that. And so I think we're supposed to be that way. Complex, but not complicated. Our theology should be deep. It should be rich. It should go deep down in the soil. It should be sturdy and strong and hold us up and be the thing that we count on, but we can't ever let it get complicated. And and like I say, I may lose my evangelical card for this, but if you're doing theological work and it ever leads you to divide from someone else, you got it wrong. If, If ever you're like, this is this is what the Bible says about and anybody that doesn't believe it's on the outside, then I think you did it wrong. I think you didn't figure it out right. Go back and do it again. Because I think and like I say, people will get mad at me for this. Sound doctrine is never worth dividing over. I don't believe. I believe people come first. People come first. And then we wrestle with our doctrine. You know, we debate. We, we can do our thing. We can, we can work it out. We can argue. We can... I'll bet I have close to... It's in the hundreds. Maybe close to a thousand hours debating Jennifer in my, in my background. I bet I do. I bet it's close to a thousand hours. Most of them in the wee hours of the night while Esther and Russ snore. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, within that relationship, sure, we can, we can debate, we can argue, we can, we can see who's right and wrong, we can, we can dig, we can challenge each other. But if ever your theology makes you tribalize and say, no, 
I'm right, everybody else out there is on the outside, then you didn't do it right. That's not what theology is supposed to be. That's not what doctrine is ever supposed to be. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, I've, I've been studying Scripture for 27 years fairly deeply. I've got some time in it. Um, and I have to admit that I could have it all wrong. I, and I totally get that. I totally understand. I, there are brilliant, brilliant people who came up with different conclusions and I, and I got to know, I may have the whole thing wrong. But what I don't have wrong is Jesus. That I'm pursuing Jesus. I know I don't have that wrong. I know, I know at least, you know, in all my systematic theology that branches out from there, it may all be hogwash. I don't know. I don't think it is, but it may be. But I know that Jesus is right. I know that Jesus is right. And if someone else is pursuing Jesus, then they're on my team, Period. So how do we respond to this? Whoops. Did I miss one? Where did my thing go to sleep? Oh, yeah. Good heavens. This is not just theology and doctrine. If in our church we allow ourselves to get consumed with fringe issues and, and we allow ourselves to get consumed with the, the, the side arguments rather than just pursuing Jesus, then we'll fall. We'll fail. We'll be toast. But if we can allow people to pursue Jesus from wherever they are and whatever, you know, wherever they're coming from and give them space to grow and learn and pursue Jesus together with us, then I think we'll thrive. I think we'll do well. In our marriages, I think it's the same, same way. If, if you ever try to, to perfectly align yourself with somebody that you're living with, it's a disaster. If you don't give them the space to be them and you the space to be you and know that we're at least pursuing a joint thing together, that we're moving in the same trajectory, in the same direction, that we're going to the same place from two different places, that's when I think marriages start, start to succeed. And Advent, I think, is the season where we bury hatchets. I think it's the season. What I love about Advent is, is no matter what church you go to, you could probably go to 50 different denominations tonight and hear Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's what's beautiful about Advent is that it's the season that we, that we kind of lay down some of our discussions and arguments and go, well, yeah, but Jesus came and that's awesome. You know, and we just agree for a little while. It's the season we put that stuff down and we choose peace. We choose the path of humility. We choose not to argue. So here's the challenge for tonight as we go to the table as we sing this last song about the Prince of Peace, um, I challenge you to pray for the other side. Just take a, take a couple minutes while you're coming up for communion. If you're, a, if you're a Republican, pray for the Democrats tonight. And don't just pray that God would show them the error of their ways. Pray for their success. Pray they do well. Pray they prosper and, and, and that God blesses them. If you're a Democrat, pray for the Republicans. Pray they do well. Pray that they're that their Advent is joyful and, and that they have an amazing Christmas. If you're a Calvinist, pray for the Arminians. Thank God for the influence they've had. If you're an Arminian, pray for Calvinists. If you're a Charismatic, pray for the people who don't believe your gifts are from God. Pray they do well. Pray that God prospers them. If you're a cessationist, you need to pray you speak in tongues. But you, no. 
Kidding, kidding, kidding. If you, if you, I was raised Catholic, and when I first left the Catholic Church, I hated Catholics because they were the first people that lied to me. After that, I learned that there was a lot more, but they were the first ones, and so I was the most offended with them. And it was a long journey, but when I came back to to embrace the Catholic Church, it was it was revolutionary to me. And it happened at a at a wedding service. I'm sitting in a wedding service. And they're talking about Jesus, and I'm like, you know what? This is the same. I would preach this message. This is a good message. They're talking about Jesus. This is good stuff. And I, and I buried the hatchet. And in, in, a, in a small way, I now consider myself Catholic again. Because they love Jesus, and I love Jesus, and we're heading in the same direction. Yeah, they got some things that are goofy that I don't agree with, but I got some things that are goofy. Jennifer's got a ton of stuff that's goofy. <laughs> Yeah. Pray for the other side tonight. As you come up, think of that. Think of those people that you're like, yeah, but they're. I mean, I understand, but they're. That's the person. If you feel that butt jump in, like, yeah, but that's the person you need to pray for tonight. Pray that God blesses them and that they do well. See them as on your team. This is not a suggestion. Jesus prayed for this. Paul begged for this. Paul chewed out the Corinthians for getting this wrong. We cannot divide. That is not biblical.